Welcome to Law School Crucible, our new podcast. I'm one of your hosts, James Harris. And I'm Dan Walsh. This is a product of the First Generation Legal Professionals and Ally Student Organization here at Elon School of Law. The purpose of this organization is for helping first-generation students. We know that law school is especially tough when you don't have family members who've been there before. Law School Crucible is centered around talking to legal professionals and learning from their experiences. On today's episode, we're joined by Steve Freeland, who is a current crim law professor at Elon and comes from a family of educators. Professor Freeland has been successful as both a professor and a prosecutor. Highlight to look for in this episode is when he talks about his time at Harvard Law, and I learned that even my professors were afraid to talk in class. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Professor Freeland does a lot around Elon. He's actually our advisor for FGLPA, so uh, we definitely appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me. And uh, to, I guess, start, let's get a little bit of your background, you know, your upbringing and sort of something about your family. Well, I uh, was raised in Long Island, New York, back in the days when it was pretty rural. So not far from where I lived, there was a pumpkin farm, and every Halloween we would go and pick pumpkins. Uh, There was a big public high school. And what I remember, too, was that there was a movie theater that had first-run movies. So we're talking uh, very quiet, very uh, rural. Even though it was in uh, New York, I hardly ever went to New York City. I was, in some ways, I think, intimidated by the place, so I hardly ever went in. And uh, that's where I grew up. And also, uh, we've talked before, and you said that you are a second-generation American Yes, my uh, grandmother actually came in from Russia, and she came in during World War II. And when there were pogroms in Russia, she was forced out and had to live in the woods for two years, uh, foraging and getting food and um, for both those years, and then finally emigrated to the United States and ended up in New York. How did you find your way to Harvard Law? Uh, well, uh, that was a roundabout path. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't realize uh, a lot about, didn't know a lot about applying to colleges, not like today where there are advisors and people who tell you, here's what colleges are, your reach colleges, the safe, and all those other things. So I really, uh, I was the oldest of four. And knowing that there were three others coming up, and both my parents were teachers. My uh, dad was a guidance counselor. He ended up becoming an assistant principal and then a principal. And uh, my mother was an elementary school phys ed teacher. I used to call it gym in those days, and I used to think that uh, that was an easy job. Although now I've uh, learned over the years that she knew more about teaching than I'll ever know. So uh, a lot of what I learned about teaching came from her. And um, they're the ones who, uh, again, I think perhaps uh, gave me the... uh, seed about going into teaching, but uh, they didn't do it overtly, and I decided when I was going to college, um, my parents said, go ahead and apply where you want to go, and I didn't really know places, so I applied only to three schools, and really only one was a uh, consideration, State University of New York at Binghamton, and the main reason I went there was it was cheap, because I knew there was three other kids coming down the pike, and I may go on uh, some other place, so I decided to go there. And I ended up not knowing what I wanted to do or 
or be when I grow up. And in some ways, I still ask myself that question. But I had a lot of courses in math, so I decided to major in math. And uh, someone there said to me, hey, why don't you try? I know Harvard has visiting student programs. So when I was a sophomore, I ended up at Harvard undergrad, and I took math there. And taking math at Harvard was a great thing to do, and it made me realize I will never be as good as the people here. <laughs> and uh, so then I realized I better look around for something because these people really knew their math. I mean, I was okay. They were really good. And so then I had to think of what else I wanted. And walking around there, I walked by the law school, and I said, this looks like a really nice place, and uh, decided to apply. And so I was lucky, got in, and that's why I ended up there at law school. And, you know, uh, you know, so you, you get to Harvard, which is one of the most prestigious schools, you know, in the country. Uh, what was your biggest surprise? Well, I can tell you, like many people, the very first day, I just was hoping I wouldn't get called on. <laughs> so uh, I had all the same emotions and feelings, I think, that almost all students do in that situation. And then when you're called on, you hope no one realizes that you're a fraud. So I had those kind of feelings as well. Uh, but I made friends with the people who were sitting around me and realized they felt the same way. And even though they had gone to schools like Princeton and Yale and Harvard themselves, that they still had these kind of feelings and that they actually didn't know everything either. So it felt comforting to know I wasn't the only one who didn't know what was going on. Uh, they were in the same boat in many ways as well. And that actually really helped to know that this idea of there's a super person in the class, and actually there ended up being several of those, but the large majority were more like myself, that they were, um, they knew some things, didn't know some things, and were trying to swim their way out of some pretty big currents that were pulling you all in all their different directions. Biggest struggle at law school for you? I think the disconnects that occur in law school uh, I felt a lot of times that I didn't know what I was doing and why and what the teachers wanted me to do and how this all related to lawyering and what the purpose was of what I was uh, embarking on. So even more so than today, it was a sink or swim idea. Come into class and be prepared. I'm not sure what that meant because no one ever said what it meant, but be prepared to discuss the cases and analyze them. And, of course, then you're trying to play along with the professor in terms of what the professor wanted. So in criminal law, I sat in the front row. We were assigned seats. And there was 150 students in the classroom. So you can go the whole semester without getting called on. And a student two seats away from me stood up and went to the teacher and said, how come you don't call in the front row? And I'm thinking, oh, no, I heard him ask that. And I, like, buried my head in my book and said, please don't do this. And, of course, the very first thing the professor said was, let's see, Mr. Friedland. <laughs> and for the next 45 minutes, I was peppered with questions. And it was also a professor who was, like, they're all very sharp, but this guy you couldn't argue with, Alan Dershowitz. So Dershowitz was peppering me for 45 minutes, and I must confess, at the end of class, I felt like I was a jellyfish. And I was not going to be able to walk out of the room. And as I was leaving, someone, a couple people said to me, nice job. But I hadn't a clue of what I said <laughs> and for sure thought that I had embarrassed myself. 
But inside the class, those kind of feelings crept up. And even outside the class, what was my purpose? What was I there to do? Was a question I asked a lot. What, what was your purpose or what is your purpose? I don't know if I really came up with it in law school because I find that one thing that happens, whether we know it or not, we tend to be competing against those around us and uh, what we, the expectations that are set up. So that hierarchies are just really reproduced a lot in law school. So I think I got sucked in a little bit by that and then pulled back from that to try to figure out what I wanted. And I knew I didn't want some things. And um, so I stayed away from uh, applying, for example, to the big law firm. I knew that wasn't going to be my destination, so I didn't apply for that. And the real question for me was, though, okay, what alternative do you have? And I really didn't know, or else I think I would have organized it differently in terms of where I went and what I did. Some of the my classmates did a real good job in getting to know some professors and having them provide entrees for them in different ways. I call them blockers. And I think these days it's even more important to get a good blocker for you rather than just say, look, I got a better average on a resume you can put down and put that down on a resume and therefore you're okay I don't think it works that well uh, these days didn't work that well even in those days but um, especially today so how has your experience in law school affected the way that you teach law school oh I think it's affected a lot I uh, in many ways do a lot of things I think the opposite of what I saw in law school. I try to explain what I'm doing and why. I also do, I think, a lot of hands-on stuff. I think my analog is not just thinking like a lawyer. It's student driving. And if someone is a student driver, they should be driving a lot. So I try to do a lot more in terms of writing, in terms of small groups, in terms of letting lots of people talk, especially if it's a large class than the one-on-one cold call, which uh, I'm not so sure works in the way I do it. I think it can work, but I'm much more interested in learning theory and neuroscience and learning that lasts, which is very different than what we do in law school. If we go through it once, that's not retained. The working memory is a temporary place. It's just a standing place, and most of what we learn gets thrown away. So we might put it in notes, but it's gone out of our heads. So even if it's in our notes, we need it for an exam to be able to switch gears. So Captain Sully landing that amazing U.S. airplane, uh, U.S. Airways plane in the Hudson, he had it all upstairs in terms of, okay, I got a minute. He was just acting because he had it organized. So I'm trying to use the idea of schema and structures. So when I write on the board, as we were discussing earlier, the goal there is to show the cognitive schema that someone can have in putting it together. So I'm trying to take people to a place where, okay, here's how it fits. They don't have to use the way I'm doing it, but they should do something. And the people who have real troubles in law school don't make these deep structures, don't go deep in the knowledge, and are not sure about the instruction kits that they need. So that becomes pretty apparent on an exam. Not necessarily in class, when someone's able to answer questions in a really uh, permissible and fine fashion, but not put it together 
on, in paper, on paper or these days on the computer. And again, fuzzy writing equals fuzzy thinking. So unless it can be produced in a written form, that reflects on how they're thinking about it. So I learned a lot of stuff from my mother. I learned a lot of stuff. I think actually people who are high school and middle school teachers are going to be great laws teachers. So every time I see someone who's taught before, I always try to pick their brains. And I try to steal things from anyone I can. If it works, great, I'm going to use it. It's, it's not for me. It's to help people learn. Between your background in mathematics and your um, extreme interest in brain science, I'm curious, do you actually go out and search studies and then figure out, oh, here's where cognitive science is now, or is it just something that's part of the zeitgeist that you then incorporate into your classrooms? I actually do research, and I have a bunch of books in the office right now, the latest, and I'm reading some studies that are done, and right now I'm interested in what's called educational neuroscience, which is education, psychology, learning theory, and uh, neurology, brain science, Combined, because the understanding of the brain is very different than the understanding of the mind, which is what psychologists look at. And what we're learning, for example, is space repetition is a good way for long-term retention. Quizzing, lots of quizzes, really helps. Interleave, more than one thing at one time. But all the things I did, which was cramming, highlighting, (laughs) rereading, those are really not as good. So what we're learning about the brain and how to retain it, cognitive structures and retrieval practice, we should be doing that in law school and bringing it to the classroom. And while it's maybe for some people uncomfortable to say this is the way I do it, but saying this is the way I do it may not be the way it's the most effective. Uh, How did you sort of set yourself up um, in, you know, the summers between, you know, your, your, uh, one L year and two L year, and eventually, you know, how did you actually, you know, get a job? Well, my one L year, I ended up working for a law firm, an aviation disaster plaintiff's law firm in New York. And it just so happened, I forgot even how I got it. And it was just a chance to go to New York City for the summer. And what I remember about this firm is I never saw any of the lawyers in the firm. They were always traveling and always at some kind of... Uh, site where there was a crash or um, a hearing for weeks on end. And I was the one they'd call back in the office to get things set for them. So I never saw anybody. I think I was the only one. The office was desolate. It was just (laughs) empty. And uh, I kind of knew right then and there I did not want to do that kind of work (laughs) either. So that was my first year summer. And then second year summer, I decided, even though I was pretty averse to it, I would try the big firm life. And uh, I actually enjoyed it. And that was because they treat the summer associates much better than the regular associates. (laughs) So they took us to ball games and they took us for picnics. And I I did notice, though, every time I left, only the summer associates were leaving between five and six. (laughs) And that everyone else was still in the firm and they were still working, even though it was a beautiful July evening, uh, except when they were escorting us on some trip somewhere. But I started teaching, actually, right after law school, um, kind of just a coincidence. I did not know what I wanted. You asked that earlier. And so I clerked for a judge in Miami. And um, three months into my clerkship, sometime I think it was about October, I got a call from a prof at the University of Miami, and he said, hey, our evidence professor's ill. And he and I had spoken a bunch of times and gotten to know each other. Hey, how would you like to teach evidence? 
And I'm thinking, well, given that I have taken the course, <laughs> I guess that qualifies me to teach it because I'd never been in really in a courtroom, although I had, um, I did an externship for Greater Boston Elderly Legal Services, which I really loved in my third year. So I said, sure. And so there I was in January with 80 second and third year law students, and I would go over for an extended lunch for my clerkship. And I had read every study guide I could that right beforehand so I could teach the darn thing the next day. And I had a great time. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. As I look back, I was like, how could you even do that? Just because you can ride in a plane doesn't mean you should be flying the darn thing. But they let me do it. And I remember no one, not one person from the school ever came in to check on me. So I guess no news is good news. And I can't say <laughs> I taught as well as I probably uh, could have. But, I mean, I had a great time, and I think the students liked it. And uh, that's when I started teaching. So um, we also know that you were a prosecutor. So yeah. how did you, I guess, eventually I guess, shift to prosecuting? Yeah, so I ended up going to Miami full-time for a couple of years. And I realized that I could be the type of teacher where I never went and actually became a lawyer. But I didn't think that was useful because I was still teaching evidence which I really liked, and other courses. And so I was interested in criminal law, and I had an offer to be a prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, and I figured this would be a nice break, that I want to see what it's like being a lawyer, and I probably would go back to teaching, but maybe not. I just thought I needed to do that, although I had an offer to do more schooling elsewhere. I figured this would be good to be in the trenches and it certainly was in the trenches because at the U.S. Attorney's Office there you did the st state crime, state level crime as well as the federal because in D.C. the U.S. Attorney's Office is responsible for all of it and they also did mental health stuff which was St. Elizabeth's Hospital so I actually did some work at St. Elizabeth's as well with criminal commitments and civil commitments. What would you say was your biggest case and tell me a little bit about it? I had lots of weird cases. Um, probably the most interesting one was one I wasn't supposed to have and didn't actually say anything on and won, um, when I was actually completely quiet. And that involved me working late one night. I think it was actually Friday evening, and everyone else was gone. When people are done with their caseload, whenever they had nothing to do, when the prosecutor's off, they just left. It's not just sitting there just to sit there. So I was working late, and I, the phone rang, and it wasn't my phone, but I, when I answered it, and I asked the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the person on the end of the line was a judge in federal court. And he said, we need a prosecutor right now. And I said, well, sorry, sir, I'm the only one here. He said, good, come on up. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know anything about the case. He said, doesn't matter, click, pretty much. And so there I was being called up in a federal court case, not knowing anything about. And basically I was told all I had to do was stand there and say, is the U.S. Attorney's Office here? Yes. And it'll be fine because I didn't want to go in anybody else's case. And it turns out that a Philadelphia law firm had sued the Pentagon to release their client from a, an agreement with the Army, or it might have been the Navy. Um, or the Army, I think it was, and the person was supposed to have one kind of job and got another. So they said, therefore, 
we have no agreement with you. It's kind of a contract issue. <laughs> and they sued in Washington. Well, the judge really wanted just to consider one preliminary issue, and that was jurisdiction. Because the Pentagon is not located in Washington, D.C., they actually brought suit in the wrong place. They missed it by a river. It's separated by the river. <laughs> yeah, it's a CIPRO issue. And you can't sue in Washington when it's a Pentagon issue. you got to sue in the Northern District of Virginia. So the judge basically said uh, to the counsel, counsel, you should be suing in the Northern District of Virginia. I can't handle this case. I'm going to have to dismiss it. And the Philadelphia law firm argued, we'll abide by our decision, judge. It's not a problem. Don't worry. And, of course, the judge said, hey, it doesn't matter whether you abide by it. I have no jurisdiction. <laughs> Pretty much saying, you should have learned this in law school and dismissed. And basically said thank you to me, even though I didn't do, of course, anything. And that was probably one of the most interesting cases. Didn't you work on the Unabomber case in some capacity? So after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, I went to Atlanta. And I was teaching there. And I actually went back to Florida. And I've taught at different law schools. And I was teaching at Georgia State at the time. And I was teaching in the night school. Well, in the night school, you have school from 6 to 9 p.m., for example, or 6 to 10. I actually taught evidence four hours in one night. And most of the times, that was pretty painful for the students who had worked all day. And then to have four hours, I think I was the only one who was awake by the end. But one of my students happens to have been a jury consultant. So she would sit and talk to me about her cases. And she got this case, and it was involving a guy named Ted Kaczynski, and said, hey, we have some evidence issues. Would you like to help us out? I said, sure. So we went over a couple of evidence issues if it went to trial, and I learned a lot about it. And the real issue there was he wasn't probably going to go to trial. He was either going to plead guilty and get a life sentence or try to go to trial and probably end up with a death penalty because it was pretty clear what he had done. And he was turned in by his brother because the FBI thought that the inventor of Tickle Me Elmo was the guy who did it. So the FBI was way off. And if not for the family, he would not have been turned in. So I helped him out on the evidentiary issue. And uh, he ended up firing his lawyers, then thinking it over and pleading guilty. So he never ended up using those issues. But she gave me some of the jury questionnaires that she used over time. And those were very interesting. Uh, what advice would you give someone who's either interested in law school or in law school right now? I would say, and for me, for example, I had no role models or mentors in law. And I only went to law school, like I said, I was thinking about what to do. And I didn't mention, but my backdoor neighbor happened to have been a lawyer. And so I remember speaking to him and thinking, he seems like he's doing okay. And enjoying himself. No, I didn't really put two and two together because he worked for the IRS, which was nothing. I mean, nothing that I had uh, any intentions of doing. But it's funny how just one little coincidence can make a big difference. And the, what I would say is to people, on a regular basis, take a deep breath and ask yourself, is, is this what I want? Am I happy? Is this where I want to go? Because I think just going down one path in life that's not your own path it's not something you're passionate about or something that you really want is when you look back it may not be a good thing and I think you can always change your path and move it around uh, if you want but it's where you want to go that counts it's not what other people think is what's really important 
how do you define success? I think being successful is being content with what you have. And I think I would put experience over things, and I would put uh, making a difference over what you get, making a difference with others over what you get yourself. So I think success, again, is it's how you define it, but it's how you are on a day-to-day basis with others. I mean, there are different levels of definition. I don't like the level of the focus on celebrity or people who have lots of things. I don't think that, to me, is a success. I think the rule of law in our society is really important, and I think lawyers can make a difference just in making sure the processes work. So I'm really into process these days and having us follow process so that everyone could be part of what this experience is in this country. So I really believe in the Constitution and things like equal protection and due process. And so what I'm doing is trying to just raise some issues, not just teach the rules. And that's why in our classes, I hope, we have some good discussions. And it's just about thinking about things and not simply saying, putting your head down and going forward. What are a couple of takeaways you would like our listeners to get from our conversation? Uh, One, perseverance matters. And I would say it's fairly interesting. Uh, A uh, famous uh, guy, Thomas Friedman, says to his kids, PQ plus CQ beats IQ any day. PQ, perseverance quotient. CQ, creativity quotient, beats intelligence quotient. So I think in our today's day and age, we often focus on intelligence, but people who are persevere, law school is about that, and who are creative, not just putting down all the correct boxes. I think sometimes we seek meaningless perfection. So one, I wouldn't identify yourself with who you are as a lawyer. That's just your business, your work persona. And that I think being fulfilled in life is really important. And again, taking a breath and evaluating where you're going on a regular basis, I think that's an important thing too. And not just being swept downstream because law school, lots of ups and downs, lots of um, movement, but make sure you're going in the right direction and you're okay. If not, take a time out and get others on your team. I think that's really important too. We don't do anything by ourselves these days. I think it's fine getting a team. Could be professors, other students, people outside of school. And I think it's really good to get that support and feedback. I think we all can get lots of feedback um, along the way. So there you have it. We appreciate you tuning in to our first ever episode. This podcast is a product of first generation legal professionals and allies, the organization here at Elon School of Law. Your hosts have been James Harris and Dan Wash. And this podcast was recorded on equipment provided by Elon Law. Our intro is the song Lounging by the musician Lazo, and our outro is the song Wonder by the musician Tom Mish. On next episode, we'll be joined by Professor Catherine Reynolds. Um, podcasts thrive on word of mouth and on reviews on iTunes. So if you liked what you heard, please do both. With that being said, uh, thanks for listening and talk to you soon.